You may be seated. Good morning, Mars Hill. Kids, you can exit if you want to your classrooms. <clears throat> if you're a guest with us, we're glad that you're here this morning. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. We do have some seats. I know there's a lot of people standing in the back. We have some seats over here, and front row is always open. Anybody wants that? We are in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 to 310, as you heard Danielle read earlier. I was reading this week a uh, historical uh, scholar, commentator on this text, and really on the letters of John, and, and, and he said, you know, trying to make sense out of the letters of John in the organizational sense, trying to understand the flow systematically, he says is futile. Uh, in other words, it's hard to read John and understand the logical flow of what he's saying. And the reason is he bounces from topic to topic to topic to topic. He centers on several key topics, but he keeps bouncing all over the place and, and repeating himself so many different times. And so uh, it's hard. And, and one of the things that you do when you, when you read a text like that is you can either glaze over, gloss over, and, and just move on, or you can, it causes you to pause and to dig in. Just like with that song we just sang, there was a, a, refrain, a pause in the middle of the song a couple of times, and, and we listen a little bit more to the words. And, and that's what John is going to help us do this morning, is hopefully pay attention more to the words by, by some of the repetition and some of the bouncing that he does. There is a way for us to understand this text, though. There's three imperatives in the text. The first is abide. We're going to talk a little bit about that. John wants us to keep abiding, keep on abiding in Christ. The other imperative is in chapter 3, verse 1, and that's the word see or behold. You can translate that also meditate because it's keep on seeing something, keep on seeing your identity as children of God. And then there's a third thing in the text that's imperative and it's in chapter 3, verse 3, and it's the word purify. And it's an interesting word, and we'll talk about it, why it's interesting, but it's an imperative. It's something we must do and keep on doing. We have to remember this letter in, in its context and what John is doing here. The Gospel of John, if we were to study the Gospel of John, John says why he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the Gospel of John so that we might believe. He's writing so that we might understand the gospel and put our faith in Christ and hope in Christ and become believers. That's why he writes the gospel, John. That's not why he writes the letters. The letters, John says, 1 John 5, 13, are written to believers so that we might know we have eternal life. So in other words, he's writing the, the gospel, John, so that we might be transformed by the gospel, he's writing these letters so that we might live the gospel-transformed life. Do you see the difference? That, he might, that we might squeeze the gospel-transformed life out into the world, that we might look and live and, and act differently because of what Christ has done for us in reconciling us to God. That's the distinctions. And, and so what John does is largely try to write for encouragement. He's trying to give confidence. He's trying to write for assurance. This is who you are. Now live like it. Act like it. Talk like it. Pursue what you're supposed to pursue in the Christian life. 
So that's one of the chief objectives is assurance, is strengthening faith. The other objective that John's trying to write to address is, is to address false teachers. False teachers that, that were denying Jesus, and he says this repeatedly, you cannot, he's emphatic, you cannot have the Father, you cannot have God apart from Jesus. So, so John is very emphatic on that point. But another thing they were teaching was that it's possible to have God have a spiritual experience with God and, 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 and still be in a pattern, a habit, a lifestyle embracing sin. The way they made that distinction was distinguishing matter from the spiritual. So the physical from the spiritual. So in other words, all that matters is we escape this world, we, we, we have a spiritual experience. That's all that really matters. How we live does not matter. And John, again, emphatically says that's just not true. It's not true. First, you cannot have an experience with God apart from Christ. And if you have Christ dwelling within you, you will live differently. There's just no other choice. There's no other way. It's just who you are now as a follower of Christ. And so for John, in th these verses, we're really coming, you could argue, to the heartbeat, to the crux of his argument here in, in this letter, in these letters. He wants us to do those three things to abide and keep on abiding in Christ, to meditate and keep on meditating in our new identity before God as children of God, and as a result, to seek purity, to let that overflow into seeking and pursuing purity and keep on pursuing purity. And he also, the, what's amazing is the way he writes, he, he, he does this in such a way that he gives encouragement. This is who you are. This is what you're supposed to do. But it's also a test. You remember John's giving numerous tests in his letters here. He's, he's giving us a tool, a way of evaluating if we are in the faith, if we are followers of Christ, so that we can have assurance. And so these are our three points, three big ideas this morning. And I, I want us to start with keep on abiding in Christ and what John says beginning in, in, in verse 28. To understand this, we back up just a little bit. Verse 20 and 21, John said something. He said, you have something. If you are a believer, if you are in Christ, you have something. You have the anointing, which he later defines as the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. You also have knowledge and truth. In other words, you have the truth of God, the Word of God. You have these two things, and what John says in verse 24 is, let them abide in you. In other words, what he's saying is the Holy Spirit is like a miner who goes to the deep recesses of our hearts and brings up coal from the bottom of the mine up to the surface. He brings up the sin, the areas of sin, the pockets of sin and resistance to God and to Christ. He brings those up to the surface and he says, look at this. Pay attention to this. This is an area of sin. This is an area that's out of alignment with Christ. You are out of alignment in this way with, with, with Christ. And what does he do? How does he do that? What's the tool he uses? He uses the word. To do that. And so what John's wisdom is in those previous verses in chapter 2 was let the Spirit and the Word do their work. Let them do the work of, of, of mining the depths of the recesses of your heart. Let them abide in you. Paul says it this way. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, lavishly. Just, just marinate in it. Let it do its work of confronting you in areas of sin and, and, and the Spirit do His work of confronting and convicting you in areas of sin and righteousness. 
In other words, this is who you are. So let the Spirit and the Word do their work. But now in verse 28, John transitions. He changes. He's not telling them to let something abide in them. He's telling them to abide in Christ. He says it in verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. This word is so important. This word abide. It's so important. It's in John chapter 15. It's in Jesus' instructions there. It's so important because it's, it's dripping from the letters of John. It's used 26 different times in these little short letters. So it's something John wants us to pay attention to. And the word can, it's the Greek word minnow. It can be translated remain. And I don't I don't often explain the Greek language. I usually just explain the definition, the way of understanding it. So I don't often tell you some of the grammatical nuances of it. I don't want you to gloss over and stop listening. But I want you to understand some important words this morning. And that's the word abide, the word see, and the word purify. All three of those words are present, active, continuous words. What they mean, in in the case of abide, it means to do something and to keep on doing something. Not just do something, but to also keep doing something. So when he says abide, what he's saying is, I want you to abide, to dwell, to remain in Christ. And keep on abiding, dwelling, and remaining in Christ. It's something we do and we keep on doing. It's the pattern, the way of the Christian life. And John's calling attention to this for us. I so appreciate J.C. Ryle's way of defining abide. He says, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant, close communion with Christ. To be always leaning on Him, always resting on Him, always pouring out our hearts to Him, always using Him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. That phrase, to keep up a habit of constant close communion, is what John is getting at. Never graduate from this truth. Never move on from this calling, this urging, this this wisdom that John is giving here. It's, It's something we do and keep on doing. It's also not passive, but active. It's if you think back to the, to the teaching in John chapter 15 where Jesus says, abide in me and, and I in you, and he's talking about the branch and the vine, the, the branch does not just sit there. The, the branch constantly draws its nourishment from the vine, from the root. And out of the overflow of that nourishment, the branch thrives. The branch lives and the branch ultimately produces fruit. And John is saying something very similar here. That we must constantly, always be nourished by Christ. Constantly, always be in the habit of constant communion with Him. So what is this? We're still sort of nebulous. What does this mean? Well, let's return to the big three topics that John keeps hammering home. And I think it'll make a little bit more sense. When we think back on those three things that John just keeps hammering home, the first is that we have a right understanding, a right knowledge of who Jesus is, right belief. So in other words, when he says abide, what he's saying is look at who Jesus is, look at his person, look at his work, look at, look at who he is, what he's done for you, look at it and keep looking at it. Never stop looking at it. 
Never stop studying who he is. Never stop studying what he's done for you. Never graduate from him. But then he also moves on. Another big theme that he's talking about is that we have a new identity in Christ. He's going to hammer that home in these verses here. So, so when we look at who Jesus is and we never stop staring at him and, and never stop studying him and what he did for us, m- let it move down from the head, information down to the heart and who you are. Let it move down to the level of your identity and change who you are. Let it, let it transform who you are, your identity. You are loved. You are cherished. You are you are admired and loved, his affection is towards you. You are a child, he's going to say, of God because of the person and the work of Jesus. So when he says abide, abide in who Jesus is and what he did, and also abide in your new identity before God as a result of that work. And let that move and melt you. And then As you do that, focusing, keeping on, staring at Jesus, staring at what he's done for you, meditating on that, it will move out into your actions. Let it keep moving out. Press it out into your actions and into your life. This is what John has been hammering on. So when he says abide, this is what he wants us to abide in. This is what it means to abide, to have the the habit of constant close communion with who Jesus is and what he did, what he's done in my heart and my life, the identity I have before God as a result of Christ, and then abiding constantly, working that out into practice. And John is saying here, this is what we are called to, present, active, continuous. This is what we are supposed to do, called to do. It's an imperative. Now look at the results that come about as a result of doing this. If this is the regular pattern and habit of our hearts and our lives, he says first that we will grow in confidence. This is again another major theme in John. He uses it, I think it's it's six to nine times in these letters. He's writing that we be confident, that we have assurance, that we know who we are in Christ, that we know what he's done for us and, and know what it means for us in terms of our relationship to God. We'll grow in confidence, assurance that I am loved, I am wanted. God so loved me, he really does so love me that he sent his son to die for me. I can approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. He does want to hear from me. He does hear me when I cry out and when I pray. He does know when I shed tears and and I'm brokenhearted. He does hear me and know me. This is confidence that John wants you to have and me to have. We also, in growing in that confidence, we will grow in our confidence and have nothing to fear, nothing to shrink back from in shame at Jesus' return. John's borrowing language from Genesis chapter 3, you remember when Adam and Eve, after they acted lawlessly, acted as though they were in charge and knew what was best for their lives, sin entered the picture. Everything was fragmented, fractured, alienated, broken. And what did they do immediately? They retreated in shame. It says they were naked and ashamed. They were hiding, covering themselves. They were alienated from God and alienated within and alienated from one another and all of this shame. And and what, what John is saying is in Jesus, all that shame is removed. All that shame 
is covered. You are forgiven of your sins. You are right before God. You are right within and you are being made. You are right and being made right with others. If you will remain in Christ, if you're in Christ, remain in Christ and keep remaining in Christ, this is who you are. You have nothing to fear. Do you hear the encouragement dripping from John's words? This is what he wants to give us. And then he says, you will also produce fruit. We'll explore this further, but he's saying this is just the reality. If you are a branch that is in the vine, you cannot help but produce fruit. He'll talk about what that fruit is in this text. It's the fruit of holiness and purity. It will result, even if incrementally, it will happen. And then the last thing is because of all of that, you will give evidence of being born of him. This is the first time John uses that phrase, born of him or born of God. And it, but it's another major theme that he's going to camp out on in these letters. And this is where John sticks a pin in his point and he pauses and he loses his mind over what that means. And every single word is so astonishing. It's dripping with wonder and awe in chapter 3, verse 1. John has said, I want you to keep, I want you to abide, I want you to keep on abiding. And abide in what? Abide in Christ and what he has done for you. And what has he done for you? He's given you a new identity as children of God. Essentially what John's going to say here is born of God. Can you believe that? Can you get a load of this? This is unbelievable. And that's where he goes with the next imperative in chapter 3, verse 1. And it's the word see. So, so that word is another present active imperative. <coughs> present active imperative. It's the same concept as abide. It means to see and to keep on seeing. It means to behold and to keep on beholding, to look and to keep on looking. It's not a one-time action. It's an ongoing, continuous way of living. John wants us to see and to stare at something, to be mesmerized, to be overwhelmed and shocked and astonished by something. It's an imperative that is a forceful command in the text. It's one thing for me to say to you right now, let's look at Jesus in the text. I feel like Jimmy Fallon letters, right? Writing thank you notes. Let's look at Jesus in the text. That's not what John is doing here. There's a totally other difference from let's look at Jesus in the text to what John is doing. What John is doing is, look, look, it's Jesus. I realize I got to get loud to make that point. That's what he's doing, though. It's the equivalent. It's the same Greek word that John the Baptist used in John chapter 1, verse 29, when he said, behold, see, look. It's not pleasant. Look, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's God's lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Look, look. That's what John is doing in this text. Look, look, look at your identity, children. Look, you are children of God. What does he want us to look at? What kind of love the Father has given us. What kind of love the Father has given us. The, the word the, the, for that what kind, that Greek word, is, it's, 
It's another profound, astonishing, shocking word. Potapoi is the Greek word, and it's a word that was used sometimes in ports when a ship from afar would come in. They didn't have radios. They didn't know where this ship was coming from. They didn't know what land it was coming from. So they would say, Potapoi, Potapoi. From what land is that ship coming from? From where? What foreign land is that ship coming from? What John is saying is from what foreign world is this love? What supernatural, astonishing, astounding, just everlasting, amazing, cannot fathom love is this? Do you see this? John is trying to get your attention. He's trying to get my attention. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. From what universe is this? It's so, there is no love like this love in all the universe. John's drawing our attention in. And he's calling us to look and to keep on looking. To meditate and keep on meditating. And what is the love that he's wanting us to look and to meditate on? It's the love the Father has given to us. Given. This word means concrete permanence. The love that he has given to us and will never take away. He has adopted us as his children and he will never unadopt us. He has chosen us as his sons and daughters, poured out his love. God so loved you that he sent his only son to die for you. And that love will never cease and never end. This is the love that John is calling us to. That, that look at the love of the Father. What kind of love is this that the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? What kind of extraordinary, otherworldly, supernatural, amazing, astounding, astonishing love is this that God would want me, Neil, by name, the infinite holy God of the universe. That is extraordinary. And the love that he has poured out on me in Jesus to give me and to call me, to, to make me a child of God, to call me his son. John says, look, look at it and keep looking at it. Meditate on it and never stop meditating on it. You are loved. You are wanted. You will never be disowned or unadopted. He will never withdraw his affection and his love for you because of the work, the person of Christ Jesus. Never graduate from that point. That's what John is telling us. Instead, spend all your life meditating on that truth. Spend all of your days abiding in that reality. This morning when you woke up, one second after that, the next second after that, every single day, all of your life, constantly return to this. And there's a reason John wants us to do this. There's a motive. John, everything in this is astonishing language. The language is astonishing, and John is astonished. And he wants us to be just as astonished by this unfathomable love that God has poured out on us. He wants us to look at the quality of this love, the quantity of this love, the permanence of this love, the, the, the immensity of this love, the infinitude of this love. What other adjectives can I put in there? This is what he's calling our attention to. 
And there's a reason he wants us to camp out on that, meditate on it, and never graduate from it. John knows. He 100% knows that the more we abide in Christ and keep on abiding in Christ, the more we meditate on our identity as sons and daughters, as children of God, and keep on meditating on it, the more we will want to throw off sin. He knows. What, what John is doing is giving us the nuclear power reactor motivator for spiritual growth. He knows that the more we understand this, let the Spirit do His work with the Word, illuminating, awakening us to who Jesus is and what He's done for us on the cross and in our hearts and in our lives, the more we, will, we meditate on that, the more we will do what Paul says, which is seek ways to please God. The more we will throw off sin, everything Paul talks about in Galatians, Ephesians, he's talking about throwing off sin, Colossians, throw off sin and put on Christ. The more we will want to do that, the more we will delight in doing that, the more we will want to please him and honor him and, and rejoice in him. It's a nuclear power reactor for spiritual growth and change. The alternative is our little pedal power self-will. Our little, self, our little pedal power self-will for growing in Christ will only last as long as we feel like it. And that's the audience, the, the, the false teachers that John is addressing. If you minimize the holiness of God, if you minimize your sin, if you minimize Jesus, well, you don't really have much that you need to address in your life. And you can handle it when you get to it. Just live a decent life. That's essentially what this audience, the, the false teachers, are teaching. Just, just live better than the next person. You'll be fine. It's okay. And John is having nothing of it. No, God is an infinitely holy God. We are sinful and have been alienated from him. We have rebelled against him and there's a separation between us. But God has made a way in Jesus for us to be reconciled to him. To be called children, sons and daughters, not just an acquaintance, not just a friend, but a son, daughter. And John says, the more we meditate on this, the more you, you, you dwell in this and bask in this and are fueled by this and marvel at this, and the more you're melted and moved by this, the more you're willing to throw off sin, the more you're willing to pursue holiness the more you want to please him. If God is that infinite and he's that holy and we're that sinful and yet he loves us that much, then you will be motivated. That's a love worth giving up things for. The other, you're not going to give up much for if it's meh. You don't sacrifice for meh. You don't say no and resist sin and temptation for. Mm. But for otherworldly, supernatural love, you'll give up everything for. You'll run through a brick wall for it. And that's what John's calling our attention to. That's what we have in Christ Jesus. And that's why the world does not recognize us. Verse 1, B. 
No wonder the world doesn't know us and doesn't understand us and doesn't recognize us. They don't recognize this otherworldly extravagant love. The world stands in, in awe like, what do you mean you're not just going to go off into this illicit affair? What do you mean you're not going to talk like that or act like that or do this thing? That makes no sense to me. I don't understand why you would give up those things, those pleasures and treasures of this world. I don't understand. Sometimes it outrages the world. What are you talking about you're going to act that way? And they lift their fists. The world does not see us staring over their shoulder at the beauty of Jesus. They don't see us. They don't see what we're staring at. Oh, that we might see it better so that we might throw off sin more. So that in staring at him and in throwing off sin, the world might see him in us. Oh, that the world, we might say, look, but you have to look with me. Turn around. Look with me. Oh, that we would do this. This is what John's calling us to. Abide in him and keep on abiding. Meditate on your new identity and keep on meditating. And as if it couldn't get better, John says in chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 2, he reiterates his point. He says, and we are God's children now. See what kind of love the Father's given to us that we would be called children of God? And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. This is, this is so important for us. We are God's children now. This, this means many of us think about, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm God's children. I'll, I'll be with him one day in, 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 in the future. I'll be with Jesus. I'll be with God. I'll have all of that. That's wonderful. I'll get all those spiritual blessings and, and inheritance. And that, that's awesome. John says, now. All of that is yours now. One word. One word ought to just floor us Now. This means that if we're in Christ, we aren't waiting to become children of God. We are the children of God. If we are in Christ, we aren't waiting for all those spiritual blessings. They are ours now. Read Ephesians chapter 1. Go back and read it. Count the number of times Paul says in Christ or in him and then look at what he is saying that we get in Christ or in him. The very first thing, we get every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Everything of God's is ours. John says, now. We get an inheritance in the saints, a new family. As a result, you got a broken family, you get a new family now, not just then, now, we get an, a new identity, not then, now. We are redeemed now. The, all of these blessings are ours now. We get his resurrection power. Paul says, I pray that you would know the power of his resurrection. John is saying that's ours now. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is ours now. One word. As if it couldn't get better, John is saying all that you are in Christ and all that is his, all the inheritance that is his, all the blessings that come with him are yours. Wonderful. And they're yours now. Meditate on this reality and keep on meditating on it. Never graduate from it. And again, as if it could not get better, what he says in, in the latter half of two is even more extraordinary. 
He says, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. What we will be has not yet appeared. This means two things. First off, he's clear, clarifying for us. He's not talking about living now in, in some sort of sinless perfection. What we will be, we are not yet. We are not yet what we will be. In other words, we still will struggle with temptation and sin. But what we are now is a child of God who is loved and being called to conformity and purity, and being nudged by the Spirit with the Word to conformity and purity and holiness. But there's a second thing, and it's even more astonishing that John is teaching us here, and that is everything that I have described, everything that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1, everything John is saying about what it means to be a child of God, what all those blessings that come with being a child, Everything that I possibly know, everything that each individual person in this room possibly knows, put together and collectively, is but the tip of a needle in comparison to the universe. Is but a single snowflake in comparison to Mount Everest. Do you get what I'm saying? What Paul is saying, what John is saying? We cannot even remotely fathom. We could spend all of our days meditating and continuing to meditate. We could pool all of our resources together and we will never fully grasp what is coming. And John says, what's coming is yours right now. This is such extraordinary language that John is using in these verses and this leads John back on track to his point. And our third point this morning. If we are in Christ and abiding in him and called to keep on abiding in him, if we, are to, if we have been given a new status and identity as children of God and we are to meditate on that reality and keep on meditating on that reality, well, that leads us to a third imperative in the text then we must pursue holiness. What's interesting is, I said there were three imperatives, all present, active, continuous. There was abide, abide, keep on abiding. There's see or look or meditate and keep on seeing, looking, and meditating. And then there's verse three, purify and keep on purifying yourself. But purify is an interesting word here because it's an imperative, meaning do it and keep on doing it. But it's also an indicative, which means this is just what a Christian does. So in this way, John is both giving us encouragement. This is how you're supposed to live. Is it, it, stare at that beauty. Stare at the cross. Never graduate. Never leave it. Stare at what Jesus did for you. Meditate on it. Let it melt and move from your head down to your heart. Let it transform you. Keep pursuing holiness and pleasing. Do this. Do this. But John is also telling us this is what Christians do. This is who you are. Geico commercial. It's just what we do. It's just how we live. It's just what is true of a follower of Christ. So that John can both give encouragement and a test in one word. It's brilliant. It's amazing. He's telling us this is, this is what we're called to. This is nudging us to this. This is what you do. But he's also telling us 
This is who a Christian is. Everyone who has this hope, he says, verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him, Jesus, purifies himself. It's an action. It's active. It's it's an imperative and an indicative. It just is. It's what you should do, and it is what you will do if you're a follower of Christ. Eventually, even incrementally, you will throw off sin and want to throw off sin. Why? Because your identity has changed. Because of Ezekiel 36, 25, and 27, when the Spirit comes in, He takes out your heart of stone and He gives you a brand new heart of flesh. And what does He say right after that? And moves you to follow His statutes and decrees. You don't naturally want the statutes decrees unless the Spirit has done this work. And if the Spirit's done this work, then you will, even eventually, even incrementally, want to do this. When you stare at that extravagant love, you will want to give up everything for it and respond to it. Everyone who has this hope will eventually, even incrementally, pursue purity and practice righteousness even as Jesus is pure. It's not a suggestion. It's not a suggestion. It's a reality. It's an imperative. It's a command. But it's also a reality. It's an indicative. It's what we are. It's what we will do. The gospel produces results. The gospel has the power to change, to save lives. Paul says that, Romans chapter 1. And the gospel transformed life will eventually bear fruit. The gospel has the power to change or transform a life, and the gospel transformed life will eventually bear fruit. What's the fruit here? Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit in, in Galatians, what's the fruit here? The fruit is pursuit of holiness, pursuit of purity, practicing righteousness. That's what John says here in these verses. And the rest of the text fleshes this out, this point that John is making here. He begins to compare and contrast, taking the, the test part of purification and pursuit of righteousness and give us, gives us a comparison and contrast between those who are the children of God and those, he says, boldly and bluntly are the children of the devil. He compares and contrasts the two here. If, if we go back to chapter 1, the thesis was God is light. His children then will resemble light. Here, God is righteous. He says that in verse 29. You know he's righteous. And then the argument here in these verses is if he is righteous, his children will resemble righteousness. If they, if they resemble light, then you have confidence and assurance they, uh, that you are in Christ. If you resemble righteousness, then you have confidence and assurance that you are in Christ, and in, in children of God. If you do not, then you have reason to question and ask some serious questions about your heart and your life. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus he's got to be born again. Nicodemus is confused by that. What does that mean? Born of the Spirit, John says, Jesus says. The Spirit blows where he wills and redeems at his will. How do I know then the winds of the Spirit have worked and moved in my heart, in my life? How do you know the wind's blowing outside? By looking at the leaves. John's giving us leaves to look for. Look for the winds of the Spirit. Look for the leaves rustling in the wind. Look for the the leaves of, of holiness. Look for the leaves of faithful obedience. Look for the leaves of righteousness. Look for the pursuit of this, the 
the growth, even if incrementally, that's there, that you slough off sin, you get rid of it, you remove it, and more and more are putting on the image and likeness and conformity to Christ. John does this comparison. Andrew, put all of that up on, on the screen at one time. I won't go through all of that. Th- this is what John does in the next few verses. This is what he's been doing. This is what he's doing in these few verses. He's giving us a comparison and contrast. Those who are children of God abide in Christ. Those who are, are children of the devil deny Jesus. That's an argument that he makes in the text. You cannot have Jesus. You cannot have the Father apart from Jesus. Those who are children, their habit, their practice is righteousness. Is, is, it looks like Jesus. Those who are not, do not conform to the image of Christ, are not interested in purity, don't, he uses a key word, lawless, live as though they are a law unto themselves, live to themselves. The big, big idea that John is doing here is a, is a wordplay between abiding in Christ, continual habit of being close in communion with Christ, Versus the habit of being in close communion with sin. John is unpacking for us this test. And the key for us to understand is the interior life. Has the heart been changed and therefore the loves and loyalties that we would see in the outward life... Have they also been changed? If the loves and loyalties have been changed, then you have evidence that the heart has been changed. Are they practicing righteousness? Then you have evidence that they are in Christ, that they're a child of God. Are, are, are their heart, is their heart lawless? Which John could have used any word for sin. There's over a dozen words that he could have used for sin, but he uses this word. It's the essence of sin. It's to live as though there, there it, it, it's to live as though there is no standard, no law, no, no ultimate, no God. To live as though I'm God. To live as though I know what's best. It's Genesis 3. And John says, is that the bent, the habit? That, that, are they at home in that life? Are you at home in that world? Is that the bent, the habit, the trajectory of your life? Then you are separated from God. You are not a child of God. You do not have the joy and the wonder and the astonishing love of this. But you can. And John gives us the answer in the text. The answer is Jesus. There's a real important reason John's doing this. If we can reduce God and his holiness down, if we can, then we can reduce our sin down, and, and we, we just don't need a Savior. We, we can just muster it up on our own. We can do it on our own. We just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can just live as long as I'm better than the next person. And John is saying, no, no, no. God is infinitely holy, and you are you are pervasively sinful, yet he made a way to reconcile you to God by his grace, his extraordinary love in Jesus. And that's where he gets in the, 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 the ending, closing verses here. He gives us these three imperatives. Keep abiding in Christ. Keep on meditating on your identity as the children of God. Keep on letting that overflow into the pursuit of holiness. But by giving us those imperatives, he's also giving us a test if we'll take them in reverse. Are you practicing righteousness? Does your life resemble 1 John 2, 6? Does it, do you walk as Jesus walked? Do you, do you, are, is this incremental growth in, in your trajectory of your life, does it look like Jesus and, and sound like Jesus? Are you walking in righteousness? He uses the phrase practicing righteousness. 
then you can rest assured you are a child of God. And if you're a child of God, then all these blessings that we've talked about are yours. Therefore, you are in Christ and therefore keep abiding in Christ and meditating on your identity and pursuing holiness. You say, well, what if I'm not? What if my life does not resemble? And remember, this is important when we make that distinction here. Lawless is a present active continuous as well. Keeps on sinning, present active continuous. Uh, Practices sin, he uses. Continues in sin. All of these words. The volume of present active words in this text is is mind-boggling. All of these means mean is the habit of your life. Are you at home with sin? Are you dwelling in sin? As you look in your heart, look at your life, you look at the, the evaluative tools John gives, if the answer is yes, my life does not resemble righteousness or purity or holiness, the pattern and habit and ongoing trajectory bent of my life is towards lawlessness, towards I don't want God, I don't need God, I can do this on my own. If that's true, what do I do? What's my hope? John gives us the answer in the text. In verse 5 and verse 8, he says, remember why Jesus appeared. In verse 5, he says, Jesus appeared to take away sin. To take away sin. To shoulder the burden, the penalty of sin on himself. To take it on himself. To lift it up off of our shoulders. Put it on his own shoulders and carry it away. This is why John the Baptist says, Behold, look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came to take away sin. This is your hope. This is where we look. This is what we hope in. He came to take away the the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately the presence of sin. This is our hope. But he also came, he says in verse 8, to destroy sin the works of the devil, the evil one. Destroy. What that means is Jesus also came to liberate those who are captive in his grips and living a life of lawlessness, who have the mind and the attitude of an anti-God state of mind. That's C.S. Lewis's argument for what this means, lawless. It's an anti-God. He came to liberate you from that to let you see that no life is found under the rule of Jesus. Under the rule of God, you will never move there without the liberating power of the gospel. And John says that's why Jesus came. He came to liberate you, to set the captives free. Those who are trapped in the the grips and the clutches. John's going to make that argument in 4 and 5. To remove this lawless attitude in our hearts. To write the law of God on our hearts. In other words, to give us a new identity as children of God. This is what Jesus has come for and John is arguing. So have you hoped in Jesus? Have you been born again, born of God, born of the Spirit? These are all ways that John articulates this. Made a child of God. Does your life resemble righteousness? Is the habit, are you at home in righteousness, in the righteousness of Christ? Is that the place where you dwell? Is that the trajectory, even if incrementally, of your life? Or are you at home in sin? Are the leaves of the Spirit rustling in your life? Are you abiding in Christ and letting the Spirit and the Word do their work? 
If you're in Christ, are you letting the Spirit and the Word do the work of bringing up sin? And, and then are you responding in repentance and confession? Then you have evidence that you are in Christ and keep on doing it. Are you daily rehearsing your identity as a child of God? Are you living according to that identity? Basking in it? Are you letting that move and melt you and overflow into the pursuit of holiness and righteous living? This is what we're called to. This is what we, John says imperatively, we must do, keep on doing. And the purity aspect is what we will do if we are in Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, if there's anyone in this room that, that does not have the Spirit and the Word alive and active inside them, if, that, that is not in Christ and therefore is not a child of you, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would pierce their hearts with your infinite love, that it would be your kindness that would lead them to repentance this morning. They would see the extravagant, overwhelming, astonishing, endless love of the Father for them. Their life would be liberated and transformed. Their heart of stone would be removed. Their heart of flesh would be given a, a desire for your commands and your laws and your teachings. You, your love, loyalty to you would be given. Lord, for the rest in this room who do know you, who have been liberated, may we abide and keep on abiding. May we meditate and keep on meditating. May we pursue holiness and purity and keep on pursuing holiness and purity. May we not downplay sin. Holy Spirit, Jesus tells us that you have come to convict us of both sin and righteousness. You've come to convict us where we are not followers of Christ and where we are out of alignment with Christ. Do your work. You also have come to convict us of righteousness to remind us of our righteous identity in Christ. <laughs> Do your work in us. Melt our hearts by your extravagant love, Heavenly Father. Call us back every day, all the time. Lord, I wish I lived like this moment by moment. Help me live like this moment by moment. Help us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.